Welcome to Radar for Growth, brought to you by business advisory firm Pitcher Partners. This podcast series talks to the key decision makers behind some of Australia's most successful private and family businesses. Collectively known as the engine room of Australia's economy, these businesses rely on decision makers who are optimistic, confident and have a strong focus on growth. How do they turn challenges into opportunities? What drives them to continually challenge themselves and their thinking to keep growing the businesses they lead? Pivotal to the continued evolution and growth of any business is the entrepreneurial mindset, seeing opportunities in challenges, embracing disruption to deliver change. The ability for these intrepid decision makers to drive growth with energy, determination and skill is paramount. Mastering the sequence of fast growth, balancing it while remaining competitive through agile business models. It is those businesses that look beyond their own boundaries to consider what else lies on the radar, leveraging opportunities to stay competitive in today's fast-changing environment. I'm Heather Dawson, and I'd like you to join me on this journey of discovery as I introduce you to some brilliant business owners and operators doing amazing things. From a disaster recovery firm growing exponentially, to fast growth in construction, to the world of adaptive spaces, to saving the environment with a simple design and going global in the process. Throughout this podcast series, I will talk with the brains behind the businesses to uncover choices made and lessons learned so that we too can gain wisdom from their experience. And for this episode, we examine the extraordinary growth of EML payments. A few short years ago, it didn't exist at all. Many still might not recognise the name. But let us assure you that EML these days is a serious player in the fintech arena. EML Payments is a financial payments technology business specialising in prepaid or stored value products. In other words, it provides gift cards, reloadable debit cards and the like for banks, retailers and other customer-focused corporations. It's also a massive salary packaging card supplier and of major significance, it's now a provider in the sports betting and gaming industry. Think Ladbrokes or Sportsbet. And for the business, that's been a huge development. But that was all in the future when the company listed in 2011. And in 2012, a singular entrepreneur was appointed as CEO. His name's Tom Cregan, and he's been driving company growth ever since. And what a ride it's been, he says. Although to start with, it wasn't making much money. In fact, back then, 90% of its revenue was coming from just one customer in one country. Not nearly enough to stand out. How was Tom going to pull it up and transform its fortunes? Well, that takes us curiously to two light bulb moments, or epiphanies, as Tom calls them, that's helped drive Tom's strategy for growth. We're off to Las Vegas for the first one. There's not much you learn in Las Vegas, and there's not much I learn at trade shows, quite frankly, but that was 2013. I think I'd been in the role for a year, and a consultant from Bain & Company was presenting on stage in Vegas, and all he had at the time behind him was an enormous screen of tombstones on it. And on every tombstone was the name of a payments company 
that had launched and died in the preceding 10 years. Could have been technology that was too novel. It could have been technology that was too new, too old. Companies that couldn't scale, couldn't acquire customers. There was 440 of them, I think, that he mentioned on the board. He said payments is a very inert business. People don't typically get excited by payments, which is fair enough. And unless it's something quite unique, people will stay with what they have. Unless the product was demonstrably superior, it was dead. So if you were just providing a same solution or a near as good a solution, it just wasn't enough to get people to change. And so he said, if you could overcome that, then you had the challenge of how do you acquire customers? And going direct to consumer was very expensive. And these companies had failed because they'd spent too much money on marketing and customer acquisition. So he said, then the next logical thing was attach that product to a customer that in turn has tens or hundreds of thousands of customers, end users, and through their marketing of your product, you could achieve scale. And I was sitting there, it just hit me like a sledgehammer to say that that was the strategy of the business. I mean, we were looking at lots of different things. We were, as a micro-cap, 30 mil market-cap kind of business, you're a bit like a dog chasing the car. You're looking for different deals, different opportunities, partly for validation of the technology and partly for credibility in the investment market. But we didn't have a lot of strategy around that, I wouldn't say. This was kind of 2013. Once I heard that, that became the strategy for the business. We came back and said, that is the, we called it a pyramid. We said, we have to look at every single opportunity in that way. And we have over the course of time, which has kind of helped that process of growth over the years. So there we are. You've got to have a superior product, but why chase consumers when you can go to companies that already have them, loads of them, and then you achieve scale? But Tom's light bulb moments didn't stop there. This time, we're off to a rugby match and a lesson learned from one of Tom's fellow travellers there. And I'm already starting to get a feel for Tom's outside interests. It was 2013, and we were at a Bledisloe Cup game, and he had been on a draw between Australia and New Zealand, and it was a draw. So he'd won five or $600 or thereabouts. And as we walked out of the stadium, he said, it's a pity I can't access that money that I've just won, otherwise I'd buy you guys beers. And we literally all stopped on the street and looked at each other and said, that's a really good idea. We should think about that. That led us to then call Ladbrokes and Sportsbed and others. And within 18 months, we had all of the gaming operators in Australia. We then took it internationally. You've got to have some luck. And he would call it genius, the sales guy that kind of saw the opportunity. But you've also got to have the attitude of just being prepared to run with it. If you kind of dismiss things too quickly, you would miss it. But the fact that it just made logical sense and we went pretty hard at it. He never paid for the beers, but it was okay. I think I might have paid for the beers. Since then, the company has grown and grown, organically and through acquisition. Tom tells us that they spend a lot of time looking at merger and acquisition opportunities, but they're pretty defined about what they're looking for, and it can take a while to be comfortable about the cultural fit, and they're not afraid to walk away from a deal if it doesn't quite stack up. So... How has organic growth versus acquisition worked for EML? I think last year, 50% of our earnings growth, roughly, was organic, which we would define as customers that we've had for more than a year. So that is programs we've launched with a given company and their volume has increased over that year. So it's increased because more of their customers are adopting it and using it. And the inorganic is just acquisition. So we're always looking at a blend of those. 
Last year it was close to 50-50. It won't always be that way in certain years, which gave us a foothold in North America, certainly in the US and Canada. We acquired a company in the UK that gave us a foothold into Europe. We acquired a company in the Nordics to expand our geographic reach into that part of Europe. And in November, we have a pending acquisition of a company called PFS, which we paid $420-odd million for, which is a leading company like us in Europe, but with a complementary product set and technology that we didn't have. We continue to look at both of those things. And just as we've got a very defined view, I think, on the sales opportunities and what's coming through the pipeline and what we're looking to work on, it's probably easier, in fact, on acquisitions because we've done a lot of them. Last year, we looked at more than 30 that were marketed to us, of which we did two. We've got a pretty defined criteria around what we're looking for on that piece. So you do walk away from deals if they don't? 100%. percent yeah. quite right. The greatest way to blow up money is to fall in love with acquisition opportunities, right? Because they're new and they're novel and everyone gets excited about them. But apart from technology and product and financials, the cultures of these companies are critical because if you think about our business with operations everywhere from Ireland to Norway to Brisbane, the people who sell us these companies, they're typically private businesses. They're going to make good money out of selling it, but they have to be prepared to kind of end their journey, if you like, as an entrepreneur, but continue a different type of journey, still growing that business and running it, but within a public framework. And that's the bit you just can't know unless you spend a lot of time with them because they'll tell you that they're going to do that because they want the check. If you're selling something for 10, 30, 40, 50, 100 million, you'll tell the buyer what you want the buyer to hear. But only by spending six months with them and having constant engagement do you really get a sense of what that fit would be like. And we've walked on a couple where we just thought it wasn't worth the risk. Tom Cregan's a negotiator, a dealmaker, and he says being the CEO of EML Payments is the best role he's ever had. He says he's as engaged today as he ever has been, with new markets open for disruption, new technologies, and new companies coming on the scene in need of payments partners. Let's just remind ourselves about what he's achieved so far. It really has been a wild ride in many respects. The company listed in 2011. I joined in January 2012. It had one customer in Australia that was 90% of its revenue. So revenue was 3 million and one customer was almost 3 million. So we've gone from a business in one country, one customer, to 23, 24 countries, 1,500 programs around the world. Revenue last year was almost 100 million. The course of eight years has been a pretty wild ride, I would say, but a really entertaining one. It's an industry of constant evolution. We are a B2B supplier, so we are providing our services to companies who are in turn providing that service to their end users. So in the case of gaming solutions, for example, which allow customers to access their winnings money, our customer is the Ladbrokes and the Neds and the sports bets, and their customer is the end user. And we've gone from having virtually none of those programs to programs now in gaming alone, I think is in six countries now throughout Europe and North America and Aussie. So growth is just something you need continuously. Part of that has been growth in product, tens of millions of dollars spent on the hardware and on the software and on product, thinking about not the products of today, but what we will be selling to our corporate customers in two, three, five years' time. So it's a never-ending journey. Ah, yes, there's no doubt that EML Payments has a great growth story with lots to look forward to ahead. But how easy is it to manage this never-ending growth momentum? I asked Tom about that, whether he worries at night about growth plateauing and momentum dropping off. What does he have to say about that? 
If you're growing at 50% and then you're doubling in size, it's hard to continue to grow at that rate. So we tend to look at it more in absolute terms. Now, gross profit margin has been 75% for eight years, and our EBITDA margin is around 33%. So if we can add a million dollars of revenue, we're adding 330000 of cash flow and earnings. So we would tend to look at it in that way, adding $10 million, $20 million a year. Our average revenue growth has been 59% from memory over the eight years, but it's been quite consistent. So it hasn't been boom, bust, boom, bust. It's been consistent kind of growth year on year. We hope it doesn't plateau. It's incumbent on us, you know, you've got to be constantly investing in tech, constantly investing in research of what markets are evolving where, how do you get into them. The growth doesn't just happen by osmosis, but as long as we continue to grow, I think I'll still be here talking about EML. We hope so, Tom. So looking back, I asked, have there been pivotal moments in EML's growth or decisions taken that really have made a difference to the company's growth and set it on a global path? I think in 2014, The board endorsed a global strategy, which took a lot of courage, I think, at that point, given we weren't making any money. But our view was that as big as Australia is, it is a small market in a global sense. I think back in 2013, the total size of the prepaid market in Australia, which included every gift card sold and a handful of reloadable programs, was about $6 Europe was $100 at the time, I think. The US was $300 We were pretty adamant early on, I think, that in order for this to become a public company of size, we needed to be where customers are and where the volume was. So that was 2014, and the first acquisition was 2015. So I think that was pretty pivotal. We've got a $1.7 billion market cap, and that's market cap is just a reflection of value. It's not the be-all and end-all. But if we were $1.7 billion, it wouldn't be a very brave decision to go internationally. But when you're a 30 mil market cap and losing money hand over fist... I think that takes a fair bit of bravery to make those decisions, and that set the company really on its path. Yep, well, that global strategy certainly paid off. But Tom added a note to his pivotal moments discussion with an anecdote to illustrate the importance of the hands-off approach EML provides when it comes to giving autonomy to the people in the business, something Tom learned in an earlier life. I worked for a company called Euronet, which acquired a business that I had in Australia in 2003, and that company at the time was worth... I think two or three hundred million US dollars and is now worth nine billion dollars. It's an incredible success story. And they did that by acquisition and then they did it by staying out of the way. They're an American business, but they didn't enforce their Americanisms. They let the leaders run the business, they kept it very lean, minimum bureaucracy, and they just trusted people to get the job done. And I think we've implemented that. It's not a very hierarchical, top-down business. It's people are left and given freedom and autonomy to run those business units. And I think if we change culture, it would be to our detriment. Sometimes when businesses talk of fast growth, it all sounds so easy. But of course it isn't, and there are many challenges along the way. EML Payments has had its share, and other companies would no doubt empathise with one big one early on, as Tom remembers. No surprises about what it came down to. Money. Certainly, I think in the early days, 2013, 2014, 2015, it's access to capital. So the company is burning cash, it's cash flow negative, and you're wanting to grow the sales pipeline and the sales team, but you don't necessarily have the capital to do it. So there is a capital constraint of element that came into play there. More so, I think there's a constraint on the talent, and I'm not going to word this particularly well, but I think 
early stage ventures, early stage businesses need the best talent that they can possibly find, but they can't afford that talent is the reality. So they have to find talent that they can afford that might be 70, 80% as good as what they need. And we certainly had that. We went through years of having people that were really good people. So I'm not saying anything negative about them, but weren't what the company needed to kind of manage fast growth. And the beauty of where we are now is you can. So when you've got a company with 200 plus in revenues, we increased our investment in people last year by about 5 million. So investing in retention, investing in people and culture, hiring the absolute best people we can get, which hopefully sets up the next 10 years. But they're challenges. So the challenge of not being able to afford the very best people just when you need them is a problem, especially in the early days. But then Tom had good fortune at EML with some key people he inherited when he joined the business. His message, and a lesson he's learned about staffing to drive the business forward, is simple. Go for talented multitaskers. I asked what he meant. I actually presented at an entrepreneurs conference in Brisbane some years ago and I the thing that I mentioned was in a startup business, which we were back then, having people that could do multiple jobs was a key in terms of expertise, but in terms of kind of expense management as well. We had a CFO that was with us from 2013 until two years ago, a guy called Bruce Stewart, who I always referred to as the MVP of the business. Bruce was an accountant, he was a finance guy, he was our CFO, but he'd worked in multiple jobs around the world. So he'd worked in global tax, he'd worked for big four firms. His breadth of knowledge of his job was incredible. So you would acquire a company and your auditors would come to you and say, I think we have to do an impairment test on this business and that impairment test is going to cost you $200,000. Well, Bruce would do the impairment test and then just send it to them and say, do you agree? And they would say, yeah, we agree, because it was just so correct. He was so precise at what he did. So he could do multiple jobs. He could do tax, he could do M&A, he could run the planning analysis piece. He was an incredible asset. Our chief risk officer, a guy called Andrew Betts, who has been there predating me, is exactly the same. I mean, his knowledge of risk and compliance and fraud and other things, I mean, they wear multiple hats. And my lesson out of that was if you're paying for one of those hats, but the person's wearing three hats, so it kind of enables you to scale because they're highly capable people, but they can do two or three jobs. I look back on that thinking that that was a key part of our success. And when we're hiring people now, you're thinking about what are their energy levels like? What's their capacity like? Can they do one job or are they capable of doing two or three? As Tom has said, he was lucky to inherit Bruce Stewart and Andrew Betts. But it begs the question, where do you find amazing staff like that? And how does Tom define the perfect hire for EML payments? It's a global industry, but it's a small industry. So people who are excellent are kind of obvious to to identify in some cases. You're assuming someone's applying for a job because they can do it and they might have done it in another industry, but what's their growth opportunity like in terms of growth mindset's a bit of an overused term now, but are they there just to do a job or are they to do their job and then look at 10 other ways that they can make the company better? One of our mottos internally is there's no hierarchy on good ideas. So if anyone in the company, doesn't matter who it is, can email me and say, here's a way we can become more efficient. Here's a way we can sell more. We should be looking at this product. They can come to me and then it goes straight down. So it doesn't take months to filter up. There's no bureaucracy in AML. If you've got a good idea, get it out there and we'll move on it. We spoke earlier about maintaining the momentum on growth and how Tom Cregan, a CEO, manages market expectations. 
It's not easy, it seems, when that market's appetite for growth never stops. Here's how Tom describes it. When you're a microcap public company, no amount of growth is good enough. So if you're growing at 30%, the market wants 40. If you grow at 40, they want 50. That keeps you on your toes, which is okay. But it's a challenge because you're just managing expectations. And as Alan Greenspan, what was his famous words about irrational exuberance? I mean, sometimes uh, you have a a sustained period of success and the market will then factor that in in perpetuity and you're just having to manage that challenge. Ah, yes, sometimes performance is never good enough. But this does get us to the hub of the challenges of running a publicly listed company like EML Payments. Tom Cregan says of the many lessons learned along the way, developing a resilience to share price movements has been important, especially when that share price goes sideways or down. So how does Tom manage that? Yeah, I think learn to be resilient is probably what I would say. I remember years ago our share price was at $2 and everyone was happy with that and then two months later it was $1.10 and people's reactions changed pretty markedly. So I think if you're running a public company that you've just got to as corny as it sounds, you've just got to have faith in the vision and the strategy of the business and not let distraction get in the way and noise. But it's difficult. I found certainly in the first two or three years, I tended to put too much emphasis on the share price as a measure of how well the company was doing. And that would impact me, impact your moods, impact your emotions. You know, when things were going well and the market cap is going backwards, it's human to become frustrated by that. And it's human to want to over-celebrate it when it balloons above what it should be. And it took me three years and much counselling from my wife to just say, look, forget about it. It's just not relevant. And as most public company CEOs will say, it's not relevant, but it's harder to cocoon yourself from than you think. So it took me quite a few years to do that because it is a, it's just a reflection of the perception of value, but it isn't the company. The company is a collection of people and a collection of skill sets and intelligence that are coming every day to work. If the company went from $1.7 billion to a billion, investors would be unhappy with that, but the company doesn't change. At the end of the day, the people are still coming to work, they're still doing their jobs, they're still contributing. So sometimes it's just about cutting out noise and backing yourself and backing your people. There's a million detractors out there, but you've just got to cut through it. All in all, this amazing ride for Tom Cregan and EML payments has been tough but enjoyable too. Tom's already told us that. And as he offers a sense of perspective on managing issues around growth, he also considers his appetite for risk. Does he view himself as a risk taker to achieve the growth that everybody wants from EML payments? Tom answers that question in a moment. But he does highlight a fortunate aspect of running this company, and that's being able to share the risk with other high achievers. The beauty of being a business-to-business provider is that the companies we are working with, they've got entrepreneurs waking up every day thinking about how do they win more market share in Italy, in France, in Spain, in Slovenia, and wherever it could be. We're working with those guys. They're not guaranteed success. Some will hit it out of the park. Some of our customers will grow 100% a year. Some might be 2% a year. Some might be going backwards by 10% a year because of economic conditions or other things. But that's the price of admission. I think you've got to be somewhat a risk taker to want to be in these companies. They're considered risks, but they're still risks at the end of the day. If you try to be too averse to risks, no one takes them. If we didn't take that risk, then maybe we'd never have done gaming, for example. 
And so, Tom Cregan and EML Payments have come along a huge ride. From virtually a one-customer, one-country business in 2012 with revenue of $3 million, it's now a $100 million company with programs around the world. My final question to Tom on a more personal note is to ask him about the things that inspire him as he continues to grow the company so that he remains both grounded and motivated in everything he wants to achieve. I'm not sure how footy has crept in here, but there we are. It's only a fleeting mention. I would love to say the Carlton Football Club, but it's been a bit devoid of that for the past <laughs> past decade. Things are on the up and up. I find my wife quite an inspiration to me. I think she's, in terms of her support for me, and without that I think that sometimes these jobs can become pretty difficult. Some of our board have been really good mentors to me in the past eight years. I've been lucky enough to have plenty of good mentors over the years who have just imparted little tidbits of knowledge, but they weren't big sermons, but they were just little things, but but time proves them right more often than not, so I always end up thinking about people that I've had in my career that have influenced the direction of it, and I take a lot of inspiration out of what the company has created, and I say that because I think public companies in general don't often take the time to look back. There's always this mentality of what's next, what's the next quarter look like, what's the next year look like. Often I go to work and I'm inspired by the people. I was in our Irish business two weeks ago and I said that it's the greatest job I've ever had. It's probably the last job I'm ever going to have, hopefully, but it's about the people. It's about the things we're doing today on digital payments and mobile gifting and digital banking. We just weren't doing two years ago. We weren't even thinking about it two years ago. The market just doesn't ever stop. There's always new opportunity And those opportunities are brought to life by people at the end of the day. So I find the people really inspirational to work with. I'm uh, forever grateful to them and I'm forever thinking really positively about what I'm learning from them. Tom Cregan, EML Payments. And that ends this episode of Radar for Growth, Brought to you by business advisory firm Pitcher Partners, where we talk to the key decision makers behind some of Australia's most successful private and family businesses. Next up, we bring you the extraordinary world of movable partitions, acoustic design, and a company that has moved leaps and bounds in the commercial and residential adaptive space. Lotus Doors is its name, and CEO Liz Jones has led the charge. But it wasn't easy as she stepped up to manage a whole set of challenges thrown up by fast growth. We've had a lot of experienced people leave the business that decided that the journey that we were going on wasn't for them. But that caused us a lot of challenges because there was so much in people's heads and knowledge wasn't something that was transferred in Lotus. So we had a lot of pain as we were trying to navigate record growth. We were trying to do it with new people, with very poor systems, poor structure and process. And it was very, very challenging. How did Liz meet those challenges to deliver renewed success for the business? We'll find out on the next episode of Radar for Growth. Until then, I'm Heather Dawson. Thanks for listening. Radar for Growth is brought to you by business advisory firm Pitcher Partners. The podcast is marketed by Wavelength Creative and is produced by Sound Cartel. Sound Cartel.